So that's kind of a new song, right? Um, turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and you'll understand a little bit better the context for that hymn. Um, if you've been with us in this Hebrews series, uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad uh, you understand that there have been periodically places in Hebrews where the author has given us warnings, healthy warnings, just like all those signs along the interstate can have healthy signs that say, hey, don't go here, or you know, don't turn this way, and so on. Uh, therefore, are good. And this is the fourth uh, and final, I think, and, and also most forceful warning that we find in the book of Hebrews. So with that said, why don't we stand in honor of God's word? I'm going to read verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands. Look at these very sobering words as we take them to heart. As we pray, you would use your spirit to help us through these words, uh, see and love and praise Jesus even more. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Um, So I'll just begin by asking, when's the last time you you heard a sermon explicitly about God's judgment? Uh, Maybe it's been a while. It's it's not that we shy away from these topics at, at, at Tabernacle, it's just that we just don't typically do topical uh, sermons. We, we, we do expositional uh, sermons. We definitely, you know, we take a book of the Bible and we go straight through it. And when the text comes to some place that's, you know, a difficult topic or whatever, that's when we address it. We, we don't pull out our favorite topics and, and exclude the ones we don't like, um, but it also means that we're, we're not just, you know, throwing out whatever, you know, we, we think is, is strategic or desirable. Uh, instead, we're just going to deal with the text in front of us as we've been going through Hebrews. If you're new, um, well, welcome this morning, and let's just see what the Lord has for you <laughs> and, uh, and, and his timing. So let's, uh, let's look at this passage, and I want to talk about what it looks like to set aside the law of God. Uh, and, and the point in this passage moves from an argument from the lesser to the greater. Um, if it's bad to set aside the law of God, how much worse is it to set aside the, the blood of Jesus and, and then there's this language about um, falling into the hands of the living God. So, so we're going to look at those three things. And let's, um, let's begin by talking about uh, the setting aside God's law. Do you, do you remember those days when, um, when you'd be riding in the car and people used to argue fights about who controls the radio? Nowadays, everybody's you know, got their AirPods in and nobody fights anymore <laughs> because we're all totally tuned out. Uh, but uh, being in the car used to be a communal music experience. 
And, and there would be a fight about who gets to pick, you know, whether it's rock or country or bluegrass or, you know, NPR or whatever. Um, and and who, who was always the tiebreaker? Some, some of you remember. Who picks? The driver. The driver gets to pick. Yeah, that was just the rule. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, if that person's feeling, feeling kind, and they'll let somebody else pick, but it, that was just always the rule. Uh, the person in charge controlled the music. Now, listen. There's a music to the universe, uh, it, and, and, and we call it the, the law of, of nature. And since uh, Jesus is at the wheel, right, we, we, we let him take the wheel, he gets to pick the music. And it may appear that we can all play whatever song we want, but we all know, every human being knows instinctively that there is a, a theme. Uh, there, there is a, a meta-tune uh, that we're, we're either in harmony with or, or we're out of harmony with. Um, and C.S. Lewis, when, uh, just when World War II was, was sort of at its peak, uh, from 1941 to 44. Uh, the BBC asked him to give a series of radio addresses about 15 minutes at a time every day. He would go on the air, uh, right and wrong. Uh, what he called initially was, was just the, a conversation about right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. Uh, and he was arguing for this law of nature, and he was talking about, um, let, me, let me show you what he was saying. He would say that, let's assume that you hear somebody, for, help me, help me. Uh, and you have this instinct that says, well, I better go help so-and-so. But then there's another note that you hear. If I go help, I might, that might be dangerous. And so they're just notes. It's not that one's right and one's wrong. You're free to help and you're free not to help. It's your choice, but there's, a, there's actually a third note. There's, there's a third sound in, in, in your soul that says, you know what, I should probably help. Even though this sort of instinct of self-preservation might even make it feel like that's the more compelling desire, that's the more compelling thing to do. I, I want to not get involved. I don't want to get beat up or I don't want to get hurt. Um, there's still something in your soul that says, but I can't let that person suffer. And, and that is this sense of one, one of those is, is right or wrong, you know, for you in that moment. And that's what Lewis is saying is that there's a music, there's, there's a tune that's being played that, that every single person knows, and, and, you know, that is something I should be doing. And, and I get it, you know, there are people who argue that these in instincts are not universal. Instead, they think they're, they're social, like they differ from society to society. But, but Lewis said, look deeper. Look deeper and you'll see that no matter what society there is, there, every single culture admires things like faithfulness, admires things like sacrifice, or admires things you know, like fairness and justice. Every culture values and admires and treasures some of these qualities, and also says other bad qualities like unfaithfulness and cowardice and injustice are wrong. So, you know, when you look at the person who, who steals from you, if we make this personal, or even just the person, <laughs> even just the person who you know intentionally, like they did it on purpose, 
they cut you a noticeably smaller piece of cake. We know that's not fair. We know that's wrong. Like they're out, they're, they're doing this intentionally and that feels bad and that's wrong. Where does that come from? That instinct, that, that sense is not a social convention. That's the universe speaking. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, he says, when you think about uh, these differences between the morality of one people and another, do you think that the morality of one people is ever better or worse than that of another? Is one society's morality ever to be preferred over another? Is one ever better than the other? If no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality or Christian morality to Nazi morality. Remember, he's writing right in the throes of World War II. In fact, of course, we all do believe that some moralities are better than others. If your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. There must be some music to the universe. So we all know there's some sort of you know, music or morality to the universe and that we aren't just supposed to play whatever notes we want. Um, there, there's, there's a logic to that. There's a rhythm to that. I mean, even improv, even, even jazz music has chords and theory that you know, they're not just playing random notes, right? Um, there, there's music to this. There's harmony. There's rhythm. So we get hints of this universal music, but how do we know exactly what the tune is. How can we know if you and I, in the choices that we make, if we're playing the proper notes? So there's this, you know, Lewis called it right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. And if you want to read more, you can get his book, Mere Christianity, where his radio addresses, he turned into a book. And he says the right and wrong are a clue to the meaning of the universe. But, but even though we know that there's a meaning to the universe, a music to the universe, we don't necessarily know, well, how do I know if I'm playing the right notes. Well, that music clear. God gave us his law so that we wouldn't have to guess anymore about the music of his kingdom. The notes are there in his word, telling us what to play, telling us how to love God, how to love our neighbor, and how to love ourselves. Did you know that, you know, the greatest law, what's the, what's the greatest commandment, right, Jesus? What, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Did you know that the law is a love song. The law teaches us how to love. And it's written by Jesus. He's our composer. He wrote this love song. God's the conductor. We all have a part to play in this symphony or choir or whatever you want to call it. What happens, though, if somebody chooses, like, intentionally not to play along? not to sing along? How does that affect the symphony? If somebody says, you know, well, I, I know my part. I see what I'm supposed to do. It's right there in the music, but I don't want to play this song. I want to play a different song. And so they just go off on a solo. And everybody's like, what are you doing? How's the conductor feel, you know, when so-and-so on their oboe just starts going off on a riff? Or so-and-so in the soprano section just starts going off singing Howdy Doody or whatever? 
What's the conductor going to do? How's the conductor going to feel? Maybe just a little bit outraged, right? right? So I'm, I'm, I'm just helping us see the, these are very normal, logical things that Hebrews is describing in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without them. Everybody knows there's a music to the universe. We have been given the notes, and anybody who you know, is in God's love song, in his law, and anybody who you know, deliberately sets that aside is held accountable. Like to set aside the law of Moses, what does that mean? Well, you can ignore it. You know, you're thinking, I don't need a conductor. I don't need this music. Or you disregard it, thinking I can do better than you know, this symphony or this choir. Or you just outright disobey it. I don't even want to be a part of this. I want to play my own thing. Right? That's what it means to set aside the law of Moses. So the law teaches us there's a song um, there, there's meaning to the universe, this tune everybody instinctively recognizes, but we don't know without the notes in front of us. But now let me ask you a question. Now that we do have the notes in front of us, now that we, we know what God's will is, how well do we play it? How well do we sing it? Even on our best days, you know, we, we don't play it perfectly. It's an incredibly complex composition, right? I, don't, I, I can't even play music. I, I can't even play that piano. Like, I, how, what hope do I have to, to play the, the song correctly? What hope do any of us have to get God's music 100% 100% perfect? We, we don't. We, we, we hurt one another instead of love one another. We play the wrong notes and make our families and our workplaces discordant and on a broader level. This happens in our communities, right? This is why our, our cities have racism and poverty and corruption and pain. And this is why countries go to war. And this is, some are just disregarding it completely. And sometimes we refuse to play and sometimes we just set aside the music to do whatever we want. And, and Hebrews is warning us, don't set aside God's music, God's law. And then it makes that argument from the lesser to the greater, saying if, if, if those are held accountable for setting aside the music, how much more should those be held accountable who set aside the blood of Jesus, right? Look at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one? And then he, the author lists three different things. Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace, the, the composer, right, the conductor. So Jesus came to play the music that we can't or in other instances that we just don't want to play. He, Jesus played it. And he loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind. And he loved his neighbor as he loved himself. And he fulfilled the law. He did it without missing a single note. Why? How was how he able to do that? Because, well, he also happened to be the composer. <laughs> it's his song. And he nailed it, right? He was there at creation, uh, harmonizing with the Father. You can read Proverbs 8, and you get this little picture of you know, the Father and the Son at creation. 
Uh, and the Spirit is there too to make this beautiful world. And he came to us not only to teach us how to play, but to perform the piece flawlessly for us. He played it in our place. He said, I know you can't do this. Let me do it for you. Give me your instrument or let me sing in your place, right? And instead of lauding him for that, we killed him. We killed and crucified the composer. He played this beautiful music around all of those people and they hated him for it. It exposed our imperfection. It exposed our disharmony. It exposed our inability. It was part of the song. That the music of the universe has a minor chord to it. The crucifixion was planned. The crucifixion was intentional. The crucifixion was the means by which God was going to show us what ultimate love looks like, the sacrifice that he would make for our sins, to lay down his life in our place to say, I will not only play the music for you, but I will take on the wrath for your refusing to play. I will, I will take on the, the punishment for your disobedience. And that's what he was doing on the cross. Every culture understands that sin brings um, suffering, that sin requires somebody to sacrifice. It's going to require and create deprivation of some sort, corruption of some sort. People will pay. And Jesus endured death and became our atoning sacrifice. He paid for us. That's what his blood <clears throat> was doing. And that's what Hebrews is warning us against, not to trample the Son of God underfoot, not to set aside the blood of Jesus. His resurrection then is the part of the song where you come out of darkness and into celebration. You come into that you know, crescendo moment. And, and, and our faith in him is what unites us to that music. It's what unites us to the harmony of creation, the harmony of reality, and, and gets us in league and in that choir in his kingdom. When you say yes to Jesus, anybody who, who follows him and says, I want to sing with you too, and he says, well, come on, I'll teach you. you know, that's what it means to be a disciple, where we're learning how to love. But we, we take that first step into his kingdom just by faith in him. He is my my substitute. He's singing for me. He's playing for me. He got it right. I got it wrong. And, and I want his record. I want, <laughs> I want his audition to be my audition. I want to get in on his merits, right? That's what it means to have faith in him. And God calls the whole world to sing this song, the, the, the song of the God and, and the, the center of celebration in heaven, right? <clears throat> Isn't that what we see in Revelation? You've got all of these concentric circles that just expand and expand and expand, and there's myriads and thousands and thousands of celestial beings and angels and saints who have gone before us and elders and creatures, and they're all surrounding the sun. And what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing the song of the Lamb, as Revelation 5 tells us. In Revelation 15, we get another song. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is our future. This is the, the destiny of creation is to sing and to join this song. Are you singing? Is this your music? Not everybody sings, right? 
Not everybody does. It's not uncommon to hear people say that they like Jesus. We like, you know, love Jesus. Jesus is great. But the, this whole narrative about the cross and crucifixion and atonement for our sins and resurrection, I don't, I don't really get on board with that religious stuff, but Jesus is great. Do you know how foolish that is? I mean, maybe that's your position here. With all due respect, look, is, how, how does it sound for somebody to say, oh, I love Beethoven's. Betty Crocker, lo- lovely woman, but I don't really like her cooking. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't work. There's a, there's a lack of integrity there, you know, if, if I can say so. People who say they like Jesus, they're setting aside the blood of Jesus, trampling him literally underfoot. And this is why in verse 26 we hear that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer, uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. So this is the, the argument of Hebrews here. If you set aside the law of Moses, you know, certainly there's going to be accountability for that. You're, you're, you're refusing to join the symphony. You're refusing to join the choir. How much more you know, is the person going to be held accountable who says, I don't need Jesus either? Where, where else do you go in order for us to have our, our sins forgiven? Um, where, where else can we go to have somebody bring us into harmony with the music of creation. There's, there's no one else that can do that for us. So in verse 10 of chapter 10, if you still have Hebrews 10 open, it, it, you know, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. God made this way through Jesus. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are joining his choir, joining his symphony. He makes us perfect. And there's really no other way for that to happen. So don't set aside. Don't, tra- don't, don't set aside the blood of Jesus. Don't trample it underfoot. Um, because it's, it's scary to do that. Verse 30 says, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will just fall into the hands of the living God. Um, these verses where you see quotes in verse 30 around vengeance is mine, I will repay. And the Lord will judge his people. Those are quotes from Deuteronomy 32. Um, this is a place in the Old Testament. It's the last book of Moses. Moses is getting ready to hand off the mantle uh, to Joshua, God's saying, you're not going to go into Canaan, Moses. Um, and, and so God gives Moses one final song to teach the people that will remind the people of the importance of the covenant, the importance of remembering that God is our God and we serve him alone and, um, and he's the source of all blessing and goodness and we ought not to set his grace aside. So in those words, in that song of Moses, in verses uh, 35 and following in Deuteronomy 32, it says, vengeance is mine, and recompense, or, or I will repay. For the time when, when, they, 
when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate or judge his people and have compassion on his servants. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand, or out of my hands, right? So you see where the author of Hebrews is getting this language about falling into the hands of the living God. There is none that can deliver out of his hands. With that in mind, let me just wrap up by talking about why is it hard for us to forgive people? Why it's, I mean, it's hard enough to forgive the person who unintentionally gave you the smaller piece of cake. I'm not talking about that. Why is it hard for us to forgive people who really harm us or who really harm and hurt people that we love? Why do we circle back? Why do we replay it over and over again? We try to, there are flaws in us when it comes to forgiveness, but do you know that some of that is actually a longing for justice? It's not a bad thing. You're wrestling with, well, if I forgive, if I... If, if I don't hold this against them, then what about justice? Because the longing for justice is a good thing. The longing for, for fairness, the longing for accountability. Uh, and, and, you know, we have a hard time with this because we're not very good at dispensing justice. It's either too much or it's too little, and we, you know, see in ourselves this great imbalance of, you know, wanting other people to pay dearly for their sins, and then when we sin, we're like, oh, but you don't understand, you know, there's all these reasons why you should be more lenient toward me, and we see that imbalance, we recognize that imbalance, and then we actually get a little bit suspicious of our own ability to even you know, meet out justice in a fair way that's not unjust, right? And so then we just say, well, we don't want to be unfair, so we just assume the solution is to not judge at all. But that's not very fair either, is it? What do we do with justice? What's more unfair? To overreact or to do nothing, that the desire for, well, let me just reassure us that the desire for justice is not deviant. It's divine. God cares about justice and it's good news that he does. We rejoice actually in that. Every person who's ever been harmed, every person who's ever been hurt wants justice. That's, that, that's divine. That's not deviant. God put that in our hearts because he takes justice very seriously and it's one of the themes to the music of the universe. There's a, and it's one of the most adapted compositions in musical literature and we just sang it in the offertory. John Newton picked up those verses from the 12th century and said, hey, I think I can write a hymn about that. The original language um, from a requiem mass um, goes like this. When the judge his seat attaineth, and each hidden deed arraigneth, nothing unavenged remaineth. 
King of majesty, tremendous, who dost free salvation send us, fount of pity, then befriend us. It's part of the music of the universe. The problem isn't that what we want restitution when someone wrongs us. The problem is that we view ourselves as judge and executioner, and God says that he is the avenger of our wrongs. He's the rightful judge. Vengeance is mine. And this actually is what allows us and enables us to, to move much, much deeper into what's authentic forgiveness. Because we know God will hold accountable every sin. Vengeance is his. And then I'm free to release that person. I'm free to release that deed. And not go, oh, well, if I let that go, then what about justice? Well, yes, justice will be carried out. It's the great assurance of the cross. God carried out justice. So it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God without the grace of Jesus covering us, without him standing in our place, singing in our place, playing in our place, the right notes. It's a fearful, fearful thing to set aside the blood of Jesus and that grace that God offers. Rephrase the question about the hands of the living God, you know, on the very hand, it can be scary. Those can be scary hands. But what if... Those are scarred hands. A long time ago, a pastor and a theologian named Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that I think you've probably heard of, but maybe haven't actually heard the sermon. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, we learned about that in literature class, and most people who talk about that sermon disparage it. Oh, it's terrible. It's puritanical and all that fire and brimstone. Hey, look, it's a sobering sermon. I'm not going to... I'm not going to diminish that. But what does it mean to be in God's hands? And it really depends on how you view the nail wounds in his hands. And if those nail wounds are meaningless to a person, if they set aside God's law and turn their back on Jesus, then yes, that becomes a fearful thing. God, God's, justice doesn't smile on that. And justice is angry. God is angry with that. And there's no sacrifice left for them. That's the point of Hebrews 10. If you, if you, if you set that blood aside, where, where are you going to turn? On the other hand, what about those who look to Jesus and love him? What about those who look to the scars in his hands and trust that those are the wounds of love? That those are there because he took our place and bore our sins on our behalf? They are the evidence that the music of the universe is a love song, a song of forgiveness and of reconciliation of God to his people. And in that sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached, he says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice, to poor sinners. Then the, the scarred, thank you for hands of Jesus. 
Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the warnings of Scripture. Thank you for the the warnings of Hebrews to not set aside um, your grace, to not set aside uh, the blood of Jesus. Uh, Lord, And we thank you for this music that we hear, that we we instinctively understand about right and wrong. Um, And even though we can't play it very well, Jesus did. And so we cling to him, and we want to sing with him. We want to sing to him. Uh, We want to to call others to join us in this song and to to call and and invite others to follow him and to trust him. And so, Lord, would you help us as we celebrate his grace to us uh, to let that that praise be audible. Uh, Let our song be heard by many. And, Lord, would you help us to love him all the more as a result. In Jesus' name we pray.